something or someone will have first place in your heart. But when you find your identity in the one who created you, it'll change your whole perspective. started this morning, I got just a couple of little things. Well, first thing I want to say to you is this. We, you know, we, we decided last week that we would do an acoustic set this morning. How incredibly awesome was that worship music? Um, I think we probably end up doing an acoustic set once a quarter. It was, inc- that was an incredible uh, set of music. Anyway, um, I want a couple of things to do before, before we get started is, is this. I want to, uh, first and foremost, I guess, if this is your, I want to welcome everybody here, but if this is your first time or if you've never got your hands on one of these little welcome kits, um, it'll tell you about, you know, different ministries in our church. It'll give you kind of the DNA of who we are. And we've got Elliot uh, Long and Katie Long uh, standing over here. They've got these. If you would raise your hand, they'll get one in your hand uh, real quick. Number two is this. We've got our second Wednesday night gathering this coming Wednesday. And uh, this is something that we started in September, and I'm not going to call it a Wednesday night supper, but it's kind of like a Wednesday night supper, but we're calling it a Wednesday night gathering, and it's really just us hanging out together, just a time to get together and hang out. There's a, a really short devotion, and Richard's out of town, so it'll be a little shorter this week, but it's a short devotion, um, and we, we'll have some worship, and we're going to eat together, and this week, or this coming week, this month that we're doing it, Zombie Pig is providing the food, and somebody in our church has said uh, that they're going to cover the cost, so there's no cost to anybody to come. But we really, really, really need to sign up. You can sign up uh, by sending an email to info at churchonthetrail.org, not .com, info at churchonthetrail.org, or you can sign up without all of the electronic stuff at the connections desk. But we really do need everybody to do something. Sign up by, uh, really by Monday. By tomorrow, maybe, no, I was going to say Tuesday, but really by Monday so we can, we can get the food ordered. I also want to call your attention to the gathering in November. It's on November the 20th on that Wednesday. That gathering um, is going to be a Thanksgiving-ish thing, but we also are going to give you uh, a pretty thorough update of where we are on, bu- on the building, on where we are on the land and where we are on building the church. So kind of get that in your mind, stick it on your calendar for November the 20th. So we are in now, we're, we're several weeks into uh, uh, working through the book of Ephesians series that we called Identity Crisis, and you saw that in the video. The title of last week's message was that the gospel changes everything. The gospel changes everything. I want to tell you a little story. Years ago, and we're going to be at the, in the latter part of Ephesians 5 today, but years ago I was at the cemetery visiting 
my grandfather, his name was Poppy Saul, I was visiting him at the cemetery. He died when I was a freshman in college, and there was this dude several um, grave sites down from me wailing away. He's by himself on his knees, and he's just wailing away. Why did you have to die? You know, why did you have to die? And I'm looking at him like, oh, my gosh, what am I doing? Why, why did you Why did you have to die? And I'm thinking, what am I going to say to this guy? And finally I said, man, like I'm so sorry. Is that, your, is that your wife? And he looked at me and he said, no, it's my wife's first husband. Why did he have to die? <laughs> no, today, though, today is, today that may have been off color, but today our message is, that the gospel changes marriages. Last week, the gospel changes everything, and it does. And I want to. And Paul focuses in Ephesians chapter five, the latter part, on marriage, on husbands and wives. And I want to kind of divide this passage, starting in verse twenty-two. It's verse twenty-two through thirty-three. Divide it up, kind of into three, uh, three different areas. First is some pillars that he builds all of what he says upon. And we've got to get these, these two or three fundamentals right, setting us up with a biblical um, worldview, a biblical view of marriage. And then he gives us some, some very specific instructions in this latter part of chapter 5 for a gospel-centered Christian marriage. And then a couple of conclusions down at the end today, a couple of conclusions on how do we put into practice what Paul tells us in, uh, in, in these few verses. Some pillars first. Pillar number one, and I hope, does everybody have a worship guide? Because we've got some fill-in-the-blanks. If you don't have a worship guide, raise your hand. We'll, we want to get that in your hand as well. It's got our, uh, our main passage and then some fill-in-the-blanks. But pillar number one is this, that God's glory is the ultimate goal of marriage. Specifically, the glory of God in Christ. Being in Christ is a theme that runs throughout the book of Ephesians, the letter of, uh, uh, Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. And this, this idea of the glory of God in Christ, it permeates this entire passage. It all circles and comes back to Jesus, doing what we do in marriage for His glory. In other words, marriage exists for God more than it exists for you. Now, I want you to ponder on that thought for a minute. If you look on Amazon or Lifeway or ChristianBookDistributors.com, the Christian marriage book business is booming. But the question that I think that we need to ask is, is what if we're looking in the wrong place? What if we're going to books and we're going to seminars and we're going to conferences, marriage conferences here and there and other place, and we're looking for all of these uh, so-called experts uh, along the way, but we're often, often we're bypassing the expert who has given us already his word on marriage. And I want you to, re to remind you that that, that God is the Lord of marriage. He created marriage. He knows marriage. And He has given us in His Word every single thing that you and I need to know about marriage. And, and I believe that, that a question that will, um, that will at least begin to determine the state of our marriage, if you're married in here today, is God the Lord of your life? Mr. Husband, Mrs. Wife, have you submitted to his lordship? That is fundamental. Have you surrendered to whatever it is that he says? And really that surrender is in every part of your life. We're talking about marriage today, but that, that idea of surrendering to his lordship permeates all of our lives. Look, he created 
marriage. He is the Lord of it. It exists primarily for his sake. And if you and I start with, and, we, and this is what the world is screaming at us, y'all. If we start out with what works best for me, we have missed the whole point of the gospel. Husband and wife, if your starting point is what, what would work best for me, we have missed the point of Christianity from the very beginning. So the question is not what would work best for me. The question is really what works best for God in my marriage. And that is a radically different question to ask. And it is not a question that you will hear the world telling you to ask, encouraging you to ask. Marriage exists for God more than it exists for you. His glory is the ultimate goal of marriage. And so that is, um, that's pillar uh, number one. Pillar number two is this, that God's grace is the ultimate hope of marriage. His grace is the ultimate hope of marriage, which is great news because the God who designed and is the Lord of marriage will give me and you the grace to experience it the way that he designed it. Not maybe the way that we may step into it looking, but the way that he designed it. And not to oversimplify this and hear this whole thing out, but I think that scripture would say that the major problem in marriage is sin. Every husband, every wife in this room is a sinner. Now, wives, don't be giving your husband the stank eye saying, I told you so. We are all sinners. We all are born into it. We're imputed with Adam's sin, and we have our personal sin. So it's not like Susan on our honeymoon whispered ever so gently into my ears, Honey, I'm a wretched sinner, and you get me for the rest of your life. That's not what I'm talking about. That's not the way that it works. We joke about it, but, uh, but I'm for real. You and I have got to come face-to-face, let's say it that way. We've got to come face-to-face with the sin problem that is at the core of every one of us. And so until we do that, we will all be putting Band-Aids on what is probably a gaping wound. And when we realize that, we have but one place to go, and that is directly to Christ. Marriage is intended to drive us towards Christ. What if marriage is not intended to just make you happy, but to make you holy? to drive me and you to Christ. That is what marriage is intended to do. And so the major problem in marriage is sin, and the major fix for marriage is Jesus Christ. That's why we need the gospel in our marriages. We don't need the gospel just to save us so that we can pray a prayer and just move down the road. We need the gospel every single day in our lives to empower us, y'all, to, um, to enable us to realize the fact that the gospel is the hope inside of our marriage, that God's grace is our only hope for marriage. So that's pillar number two. Pillar number three is this, and in my simple little mind, it is the biggest pillar, is that the gospel is the ultimate image of marriage. His glory is the ultimate goal. His grace is the ultimate hope. And the pillar that really permeates this message is that the gospel is the perfect, ultimate image of marriage. It's the core of Ephesians chapter 5. There is, y'all, there's a, a huge connection, huge connection between uh, a husband's relationship with his wife and Christ's relationship with his church. All throughout Ephesians 5, look at verse 22. Look at the connection words 
in these three or four or five verses. Wives, submit to your own husbands as, underline the word as or circle it or something in your worship guide, as to the Lord. Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as, again the word as, Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. Now as, again as, the church submits to Christ, so also, so also is also a connection word, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, verse 25, husbands love your wives as, again as, Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then down to verse 31, Paul quotes from Genesis chapter 2. He says, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and the two shall become one flesh. And then listen to what he says. It's incredible in verse 32. He says this mystery, Paul says this mystery is profound and I'm saying that it refers to Christ and his church. What is the it, y'all? The it is God's design for marriage. He's saying this mystery is crazy. This mystery is, is profound. It's almost un-understandable. Un, un, un and, and I'm saying that God's design for marriage refers to Christ and the church. It's a mystery in that the Old Testament folks that heard this way back in, in, in Genesis 2 didn't realize the fullness, there's no way they did, the fullness of the significance of what was happening when God designed marriage and he brought men and women together. Paul's saying that that design from the very beginning, the very beginning, Adam and Eve was to give an illustration in marriage of the way that Christ loves his people. The marriage relationship from the get-go was designed by God to be an image. And so God is saying to the world, he's saying, you want to know if my son and how my son loves his people? Look at marriage. Look at marriage and you'll see a picture of the gospel. Wives, y'all, wives paint a masterpiece of the church to the world. Husbands paint a masterpiece of Christ to the world. That's what Ephesians 5 is teaching. And it is challenging. And it's also, though, encouraging. It's challenging in this way. If wives sleep around on their husband, they're saying to the world that Christ is not satisfying enough. If wives, if you disrespect your husband, you're saying to the world that the church disrespects Christ. Wives, if you don't follow your husbands, as Ephesians 5 outlines here, you're saying to the world that Christ is not worth following. And husbands, if you desert your wives, then you're saying to the world that Christ deserts his people. You ignore your wife. You're saying to the world that Christ wants to have nothing to do with his people. That's what you're saying. If you do those things, if you act in that way. And what's encouraging is this for husbands. We have the perfect expert to go to school on. You want to know how to love your wife? Look at Christ. He shows us how to do it, y'all. He tells us how to do it. His whole life is a picture of how to do it. So men, husbands, look to him. He has modeled for us the, what marriage looks like in his relationship with his people. And why? See this, that God has designed, just as God has designed the satisfaction of his church, God has designed the satisfaction of his church to be found in a husband called Christ. He has designed enjoyment and satisfaction 
for you, wife. And you may be thinking, and I'm sure there are plenty thinking right now, well, that's just not what my marriage looks like. That's just not the image that has been painted. And I know, look, I ain't stupid. I know that, uh, that there are different situations in this room, in marriages. There are different circumstances in this room. I know there are men and women across this room today and listening online that this is not the picture that the past has painted of the husband and the wife and of that marriage. So then what is it that you do? Well, what do you do? I would encourage you to do this. I would encourage you to look at, the, at your past redemptively. We talk about redemption and redeeming all the time in here because God redeems broken things. That's what He does. When you personally are saved, you are broken and He redeems that brokenness. Look at your past as it relates to your marriage. Really look at your whole past, but we're talking about marriage. Look at it through the lens of the grace of God that covers your past. It does. And it doesn't just cover your past. His grace will empower and enable uh, your present and your future. Look, the glory of God is bound up in the marriage covenant. God's grace is promised to enable the marriage covenant. And the gospel is proclaimed. When you have a biblical Christ-centered marriage, you are screaming the gospel to a lost and broken world. And so that means that God is big time, like huge time invested into your marriage. He wants to provide everything, wants to and can provide everything that you need for your marriage to work. He puts the resources of all of heaven at your disposal so that for His glory, by His grace, you and your wife, you and your husband join together even when it's not easy. Who said it's easy? Nobody said it's easy. But He will provide the grace and the hope so that when it's difficult, you can lean on Him together. You join together. And when you join together like that, again, you are preaching the gospel to the world by the way that you love each other. That is His design for marriage, and it's been that way since the garden. So there's some pillars, okay? God's glory is the goal. God's grace is the hope. And then the gospel being the absolute ultimate image uh, of marriage. So let's look at some specific instructions based on those sort of three pillars. Uh, I kind of took uh, the rest of Ephesians 5 and said, look at the roles. Let's look at the roles and the responsibilities for wives and for husbands. Look at verse 23. For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its savior. So this first uh, role as Christ relates to the church, the husband is the head of the wife. The text doesn't say the husband ought to be. It doesn't say the husband should be. It doesn't say if you have time, the husband can be. No, it says the husband is the head of the wife. It's an indicative. If we look at the grammar, if we look at the text, it's a, it's a statement of fact. It's not a suggestion. So, and, and the passage is not saying, it's not saying that the husband is... Um, is infallible. It's not saying the husband is perfect like Christ. It's not saying that the husband is uh, supreme like Christ. That's not at all what it's saying. And the passage is not saying that Christ is not the head over the wife. He definitely is the head over wives and he's the head over husbands. But the picture that Paul's painting here is in the relationship between a husband and a wife 
the husband is the head of the wife. And so if you've got any anxiety over, and I can see a little anxiety going on. If you've got anxiety over this headship thing, I want to remind you of God. The God that we worship this morning. The God that, is, that created the universe. The God that spoke everything into existence. He is a triune God. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. In relationship with each other. And I want to remind you that Jesus was okay with not being the head in that relationship. And that's a good thing. It is a good thing for Jesus in his entire life on the planet that the Father was the head. He responded to what the Father was leading him to do in the Father's loving leadership. He submitted to the will of the Father. So as Christ relates to the church, the husband is the head of the wife. And then, second role, as the church relates to Christ, the wife is the helper for the husband. Second role, as the church relates to Christ, the wife is the helper for the husband. In this passage, Paul quotes from, uh, from Genesis 2. He's looking back at the foundation, the very beginning. God's design, this whole image of man as the head and wife as the helper, God creates man first. He could have created him at the same time, but he didn't create him at the same time. And he says to Adam, he says, bro, you have a responsibility. Key word is responsibility. Adam, you've got a responsibility for creation. It's Genesis 2, the care of creation. He gives the man, Adam, he gives him this command. Don't you eat of that tree. Man is responsible for the care of the garden and the obedience of God's creation. It's his deal. Adam is established as the leader from the very beginning, Genesis 2.20. Look at 2.20. The man gave names to all the livestock, but for Adam there was not found a what? A helper. There was not found a helper fit for him. Paraphrase the next few verses. God plucks a rib out of Adam's side and he makes Eve, and then we get down to verse 24, and this is what Paul quotes in Ephesians 5. Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast, to his wife, cleave, some translations say, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. No suitable helper was found for Adam. So God created woman. So you got this picture of man as head and woman as helper, and it's a good thing. It's perfect. Everything in the garden, Genesis chapter 2, is perfect. It's perfectly harmonious. Everything is awesome. And then you get to Genesis 3, and sin jacks it all up. Sin enters the world in Genesis 3. And who does God go to first? Somebody tell me. He goes to Adam first. He goes to man first. Responsible for creation. Man is responsible for it. And not that woman was not responsible for, for her sin. She absolutely was. But ultimate responsibility comes back to the leader who had been entrusted with that responsibility. God had ordained that. Man was responsible. What happens is they're confronted in their sin and God speaks to them. One of my kids years ago, I won't tell you which one, but one of my kids, I come home from work, and I think I may have told this before, but I come home from work and he and, and Susan are pretty deep in thought. And he was about 13 years old and he said, why do I do what I know I shouldn't do and why can't I do what I know I should do? And I'm thinking my son's name should be Paul. I mean, that sounds just like Romans chapter 7. 
why do I do what I know I shouldn't do, and why can't I do what I know I should do? And I said, because your mama ate from the tree. And just like that, she said to me, well, you weren't man enough to stop me. <laughs> well, well, here's the deal, y'all. That is exactly the truth. And it's interesting. Look, you get to verse 16, Genesis 3. Look what verse 16 says. And this is the Lord talking to Eve now. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. And here it is. Your desire, God talking to, to the woman, your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And some folks look at that and they say, the whole headship submission thing is a result of sin in the world. And that is not what your Bible says. That is an absolute lie from hell. Because we have seen this headship and submission uh, head and helper thing in Genesis 2 before sin entered the world. And it's interesting that you look in Genesis chapter 3, the relationship between man and woman, obviously the effect of sin on the relationship with God, on their relationship with God, was big time. But it was also big time on their relationship with each other. So what it is in Genesis 3 is it in a total abuse of God's design from Genesis chapter 2. Now, in Genesis 3, as a result of sin, you see this great, beautiful picture in Genesis 2. Now it devolves into men that pridefully dominate their wives and women who reject uh, and resist their husband's leadership. It is an abuse of God's design for marriage. And I want you all to see, sin did not create this. Sin did not create the, the headship of the husband and the the. the helperness, I don't know if that's a word, of the wife. God created it. And, and what God creates is good. In fact, it's very good. And you say, well what, it, well, what does that mean? You know, how is that good and how is that best? And this is where we talk about roles, talk about responsibilities. It's where responsibilities come into play. Talk about wives first. Number one responsibility is this. Esteem Christ through submission to the husband. Esteem Christ have reverence, revere Christ through submission to the husband. Verse 22, wives, submit to your own husbands uh, as to the Lord. This word submit can be and absolutely beyond a shadow of a doubt has been abused. I hope we fix that today. And the word literally means uh, to yield to one's loving leadership. Don't miss what Ephesians 5 is saying here. It says wives. It doesn't say women generically. Not women to all men and not any woman in this room to every man in this room. It's saying a wife to a husband. It's saying trust your husband. Yield to his leadership. Follow your husband. Don't miss this part. In the same way that Christ subordinated himself, submitted himself to the will of of the Father. He's saying, whatever the Father says, I do. This is not an inferiority-superiority thing. It's not an inequality deal. It's not a better or worse or higher or lower thing. It's not that at all. It is voluntary willing submission. It's voluntary trusting. It's voluntary yielding and devotion to another person. It is a good thing. It's a good thing, and it was created at creation, revere Christ. So number one, submit. Number two, wives, respect your husband. Shoot down to verse 33. 
Let each one of you love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. It is crazy. And I never noticed this until this last week digging into this text that uh, there's nothing in this passage said about wives loving their husbands. Instead, Paul says, husbands love your wives, wives respect your husbands. What lies beneath all of this is this God that designed it all. He designed wives to need love. And he designed men, husbands, to need to be respected. So wives, do you respect your husband as we sit here today? Do you tell him that you respect him? Scriptures really is encouraging wives here that you need to be loved and that your husband needs to be respected. So do you respect him? Respect him. Build him up. Lift him up. Look for every opportunity you have, ladies, to lift up your husband. My wife does the most incredible job of doing that. Not the big head kind of stuff, but just encouragement and building up and not tearing down. And y'all, men need that. I don't know what it is. I do know what it is. God designed us that way. And so I will. she does an incredible job for me of doing that. Now, to, your, to you men, is don't think you ain't got no responsibility. You do. First and foremost is this. Reflect Christ through your sacrifice for your wife. Look at verse 25. Husbands, love your wives. And he doesn't just say husbands, love your wives. He says husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And he doesn't just say husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. He says, and gave himself up for her. When you and I, we deserved wrath, right? Jesus jumped in front of the bullet. He gave himself up. That is how we are to love our wives. Headship is not a license to dominate another person. Headship is not a license to berate and beat down a wife. It is a responsibility. It is a God-ordained, God-entrusted responsibility to husbands, to men, for me and you to die for our wives, to sacrifice every day to sacrifice ourselves. It is self-sacrificial love. Love your wives, love your wives. Paul goes on and on in this passage, over and over in those verses. It is God's design that that is what they need, men, so y'all love them. There's three or four ways, I think, that Paul tells us that. Number one is this. He says, love her unselfishly, like Christ loves her, and you, by the way. And, uns- and, and, and it's not based on you getting something in return. It's not, I love Susan so that I get something in return. It is unselfish love. It's sacrificial love. Unselfishly means it ain't about you. It's just like the wife's respect. She is to respect the husband, hear this now, not based on his performance. Wives, respect your husband based on Christ's performance in you. Did y'all catch that? Your respect, wife, for your husband is not based on his performance. It's based on Christ's performance in you. And likewise, for a husband, when it comes to loving unselfishly, the world is going to tell you, husbands, um, to love your wife for all of the positive characteristics that she has. And the problem with that, though, is as maybe one of those characteristics over time is not as appealing to you anymore, then your love fades. My love for my wife, the scripture says, is never to be be based on any positive 
characteristics or what she, quote, deserves. Just like your respect for your husband is not based on whether you've decided whether he deserves it or not. It is based on the love of Christ in me for her. And that love doesn't stop. The text over and over tells us his love is unfailing. And so it's not dependent, my love for Susan, your love husband for your wife, it's not dependent on what she brings to the table. And aren't we glad, every one of us sitting in this room, that God's love for you is not based on anything that you bring to the table because you don't bring nothing to the table. If we want His love to be based on what we've earned, we've missed the whole point of the gospel. And then He tells us to love her, verses 26 and 7, to love her effectively. Back up to 25 real quick. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for her, that He might sanctify her having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot and without wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. And so the text here is saying that Christ's love for his bride, the church, has an amazing effect on her. Christ's love for his people has an amazing effect on his people. It sanctifies his people. It sets his people apart. It makes his people holy. It makes his people blemish-free. It makes his people um, lovely and beautiful. In the same way, men, our love for our wives ought to have an amazing effect on our wives. Love your wives in a way that increases her loveliness. Love her in a way that increases her growth in Christ. Have an effect. Your love should have an effect on her. Men, I believe the Bible is teaching us that it's on us. We are responsible for our wives' loveliness. We are responsible for our wives' holiness. It's part of this headship thing, y'all. Influence your wife. You're going to influence her. How about influence her for Christ? You do that and her beauty will just explode give you an analogy. If, you, if the captain of a ship, captain of a destroyer in the Mediterranean Sea, the captain is tired, man. He turns the, 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 the bridge over. He turns the helm over to some ensign to drive the ship, the captain of the ship. Captain says, I got to get some shut eye. I'm about to pass out. Turns it over to him. Ensign turns around and runs the ship into a rock. Who's responsible? Who's responsible? The captain at the end of the day because the buck stops with him because he's the ordained leader. He's been entrusted with that ship. He's the leader. And yet, of course, the, 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 uh, the guy that was driving the ensign, he's, of course, he's got some responsibility. But the buck stops with the captain. Men, you're responsible. Influence your wife with godly, Christ-centered influence. So how is it that we do that as men? Well, first of all, we do it by not we don't we don't do it by dominating them, not not by being um, some twisted control freak. We do it by sacrificing our life for them on a daily basis. That is the way that Christ makes His church holy, beautiful, lovely by sacrificing His life for us. Dude, that's what you are called to do. Every husband in this room, don't fall asleep on your watch. Don't. So, men, 
all of us have been entrusted to be responsible for our homes, particularly our wife. And it is time that we rise up and we step up to the table and take responsibility for what God has entrusted to us rather than making some dumb jokes about how we're the boss of our wives. Because I hear, I hear that junk all the time. Laughing about Ephesians 5, I'm the boss of my wife. Now, I hope it begins to make a little sense now. What wife, like really, what wife would not want to follow the leadership of a husband that looks like that? What wife would not want to trust somebody who's willing to die for her every day of the week? So love her effectively, and then next, love her carefully. Y'all look at verse 28. In the same way husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, he who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, his own flesh, just as Christ does the church, because we're members of his body. And it's almost like he's appealing to the egotistical nature of guys. He's like, you know how you love yourself? You know, love your wife the kind of the way you love yourself, and everything's going to just work itself out. He said, here's your own body. Love your wife. Feed her. Nourish her. How do you love her? Carefully. You nourish her, and you feed her, and you cherish her. Her, you care for her. You comfort her. You're not harsh with her. The Bible says don't you ever, ever be harsh with your wife. Comfort her and cherish her. Lead her in a way that treasures her. Lead her in a way that she does not feel humiliated. Lead her in a way where she feels served by you. So cherish and nourish her. My wife is so curious. Who's that text from? Who's that that called you on the phone? We see a a siren of a police car. we got to stop and investigate. She is the most curious person I have ever met in my life. Who's that on the phone? Jake from State Farm. Well, what's he wearing? <laughs> Khakis. I mean, it's, it's, but, and I've gotten myself, y'all, I've gotten myself to where whenever, and this took a lot, of, like, we've been married 31 years, so this took, like, that State Farm commercial's only been around for a couple of years. This took me, I'm going to say, just about all of 31 years to where, when that happens, my answer, my response, I guess, is just, baby, I love your curiosity. I love it. It wasn't, didn't used to be like that. It used to get all up on my nerves. But, but not, I don't know if I've ever admitted that to you before. But now, it's, now it is, we're being transparent here, y'all. But now it's, I love the curiosity. It changes the way I look at things. Lastly, y'all, lastly, love her completely. Look at verse 31. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And this is the image from Genesis 2.24. And I want to bust something up. Marriage is not the joining of two worlds. It is an abandoning of two worlds and the creation of one new world. That is what marriage is. That is what a successful, Christocentric, Christ-centered marriage. This is your life. Men, this is, this is, she is your life now. She is like your own body. He said that a few verses before. Joined to her as one flesh, the scripture says. So you love her completely. Now to wrap this up, I want to give you three ideas. How to maybe put this into practice. First is this. These are going to be quick. First is this. Husbands, outserve your wife. Outserve her. It's not about what's best for you. Outserve her. And I'm challenging you. To today, before you leave this building, say to her, how can I serve you better? Number one, 
Second idea is this, wives. Respect and encourage his leadership. Don't dog him out. Don't tell him you better lead me. Don't do that. Don't dog him out. Men don't need that. It doesn't work. Respect and encourage his leadership. And a reminder here, your respect for him, your love for him, your encouragement of him, your help for him, it's not based on anything that he brings or doesn't bring to the table. The world is going to tell you you shouldn't respect him because of this and this and this and this. The Lord is telling you respect him because I designed it that way. Okay? It's based on Christ in you. Pray for opportunities to talk to him about certain things, but keep the focus of those conversations on the hope that you together have in Christ. Look for little places along the way where you can lead, where, where he is leading, and you can encourage him in those. Build him up in those places. Build him up, don't tear him down, and help him to lead in that way. Third takeaway is this for both of you. Husbands and wives together focus on Christ. Remember the intent, 35,000 foot view, the intent of Ephesians 5 is to drive all of us towards Christ. The Lord knows how a biblical marriage should look. He designed it for His glory and through His gospel He desires to make that a reality in every one of us in here. And I hope that you can come to realize that Christ wants to serve you, husband and wife. He wants to serve you as you serve and as you love and as you respect and as you encourage and as you lead each other. He wants to serve you um, inside the context of that biblical marriage. Now, I want us to do something this morning a little different. I want us to have a time of prayer in response to to this passage in Ephesians 5. Um, I want you all to stand up, if you would. Um, And if your husbands and wives here together today, I want to invite you for the next few minutes to pray together in light of this message. I want you to take each other's hands. And I want you, I'd love it if everybody did, but I'm not like bending your arms behind your back. we got a cross right here. If you want to come down and pray at the cross together as a husband and wife, that is an incredible thing to do. If you want to do that, because I'm going to ask us all to kind of close our eyes in a minute, but don't walk down here with your eyes closed. Close them when you get down here. But if you're you're here, husband and wife's together, I want you, I do, I want you to hold hands. And I want you to, to, to pray for and with each other. If you're single here this morning, um, and you know what, if you're, if you're here and your husband's not here, I want you to spend this time praying for him. And if, and if you're here and your wife's not here, I want you to spend this time praying for her. And if you're single, I want first to encourage you to pray for all of the couples in this room. I want you to pray, if you're single, for God's design in your life as it kind of relates to marriage, if that's what he has for you. What, is the, what, is, what does this look like for you? And pray as God prepares you for that. If there are any kids in here students, teenagers, or kids, I want you to take this time and I want you to pray for your mama and daddy that God would do things, and if the marriage is broken, God redeems broken things. If you are in here this morning and you're in the middle of the beginnings of a broken relationship, Jesus is the answer. Some self-help book is not the answer. 
Jesus is the answer. The gospel is the answer. And so I would say to you, you pray for that. So I invite anybody that wants to come up here and do that, come up here and do that. But I want you to close your eyes. I want us to, to let me pray for a minute, and then I just want us to be quiet and pray together. Father, we pray that, that during this time that you would give us the, the grace to see your son as, a, as just this perfect example for what it means, Lord, to be a husband. Lord, I pray that you would give us the grace to see that um, to see your church as the perfect model of what it means to be a bride. And God, that you would, um, that you would restore, because you, that's just what you do. You bring restoration, you bring, you bring redemption, and you just take care of things that are broken. Lord, we pray that you would bring the grace today to restore some brokenness that is in our lives, that is in our marriages. And Lord, let us see the beauty of the gospel in that. God, I pray that your grace today would transform us, that it would uh, comfort us, that it, would, uh, that it would encourage us, that it would strengthen all of us as we respond to, to uh, the words, your words in Ephesians 5. And I want to spend the next 30, 40 seconds just together quietly praying. Look, y'all, you can't, y'all stay as long as you want to stay. You cannot have a Christ-centered marriage without Christ at the center of each of your lives. It doesn't work. It just doesn't work that way. It's got to start with making Him the Lord of your life, personally, if that has never happened. It's got to start with you making Him the, your, your Lord and your Savior. It's got, and, and I'm sounds like I'm beating around the bush. It's got to start with your own personal salvation. And look, you are saved, Ephesians 2, you are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Okay? That's it. There's three alones in there. Right? By grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And I said a little while ago, is he the Lord of your life? So it's got to start with that. Each each of you has got to start with that. And so this is not a complicated formula. I've got to repent. We talked about Genesis 3 this morning when sin came into the world and jacked it all up because we were deceived. We were deceived in that garden. 
And so it's got to begin with I repent of my sin. That is a, an integral component of the gospel. i got to repent of my sin, and then I've got to believe through faith alone. And yes, it is faith. It is faith. What do I have faith in? Christ alone. My sin's taken care of because of that death on that cross that paid the price for it, period. And I know that may not make sense, but you know what? It's biblical truth. I repent of my sin. I believe that Christ took care of it. And I ask him to save me. And that can happen right now. You could have walked in this door this morning lost as a goose. And you could be leaving this afternoon saved and going to be with him for eternity. So y'all pray this with me. Close your eyes and bow your heads if you would. And again, anybody can come up to this cross right now if you want to. But if this is you today and you something happened in your mind and your heart, here's all I want you to, to say. And say it out loud or think it or whisper it or whatever. Lord, I do repent of my sin. I do. And I do believe that you took care of it. And I can maybe can't explain all this stuff. And I can't explain this grace. But I believe that you took care of it. And I invite you to save me and live inside of me forever. In Jesus' name, amen. And if that happened, you are saved for eternity today. And the heavens are just going nuts because of that, right?